on episode 68 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, future-proofing your organization. It is your obligation to think about these things on a regular basis and not just focus on the day-to-day management of getting tasks done. Your job is to think about the future. Think about your impact in the organization through your people. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast, insights and information from world-class leadership experts. All right, Chip, back in the studio? Yes. What are we talking about today? Well, you know, we're heading quickly into the fourth quarter. It seems like it's moving pretty fast, and it happens every year. They, there's an old saying, and that is, you know, the closer you get to the end of the year, it's kind of like a roll of toilet paper. It spins a lot faster at the end than it did in the beginning. And it <laughs> seems like it moves faster and faster towards the very end. And so for me as a business owner and a lot of other leaders that I know that run organizations, this is the time of year where they start thinking about strategy. They start mm-hmm. thinking about, okay, let's take a look at what this year was, our wins and losses, how we did, what are we going to do different? And they, they tend to start looking at forecasting the future. And so one of our processes that we take leaders through, whether it be in one of our workshops or in our consulting one-on-one with them is called forecasting the future. And so what we do is we help them identify assumptions about the future environment where, where things are going to be in the future and reduce that list down to what we call the big hitters, which will define the future of the business situation. And, and the, again, these are assumptions at this point. Then we evaluate the impact of these big hitters on the organization itself and then determine how the organization might respond to each of these assumptions, which is where they're at. And then we identify alternative future situations. So if X happens, how do we respond? So and so forth. And then we, we conduct a SWOT analysis at the very end and we help them. And for those that haven't been through or familiar with a SWOT, it's a four quadrant strength, weaknesses, threats, and opportunities. And so we help Ah. them go through that. And we'll talk about that here in a second. So now before we get into this forecasting the future, a lot of the things that we do ahead of time that I have to talk about to kind of help frame this conversation is we have to have them identify the paradigms in which they are seeing the future in. Right. You know, it's a lot different if I'm early in my career versus I'm a handful of years away from retirement. Right. So if I'm early in my career, forecasting the future looks a long ways out. Or if I'm going to retire in the next couple of years, forecasting the future is a lot different. So we have them think about and understand how are you framing this process and are you internally driven in terms of preserving, you know, why change now? I only have a handful of years left Right. versus renewing, which is, hey, if we don't change We're not going to be relevant in the future. And so we have to go through that process first, make sure they understand when they're looking at this, we all are looking at it from our own perspective. And so we got to look at the paradigms. There's four major ones, fear, duty, achievement, and integrity are the four major ones we have them look through when we start this process. Does it help them if they're a company that's been around for a while to have a history to look back on to spot trends? And how do you work with people who maybe haven't been around for a while and don't have those trends established yet? In everything, there's good and bad. And in that situation, a company has been around for a long time, fortunately and unfortunately, if they've had success, they don't want to mess with the model because we've had success. But as you and I both know, there's so many things that are happening today that if Kodak had said, well, we've been a very successful company for a long period of time, why change anything? Right. If they don't change, they become irrelevant or blockbuster video or some of the other ones that we 
talk about. I my son, who's thirteen, the the iPhone just came out, the the new one, the iPhone the one. ten, and so he has grown up in a world where he doesn't really understand there was something prior to <laughs> a smartphone. Blackberries, you know? <laughs> all the terrible stuff well, that came before. Yeah, well, I told him, you know, Apple wasn't always this dominant force. Matter of fact, 10 years ago, they rolled out a new operating system that was different than everybody else. But prior to that, nobody heard of them. Motorola and, and Blackberry and some of the others were the dominant force. I mean, they, Samsung, and they were the player. And then someone showed up and totally changed and disrupted because they were a platform-driven phone instead of just a phone. So they created a platform that you could have apps on, you could get on the internet with it, you could also talk on the phone, and it was an iPod. And that was so different in that space that Motorola and BlackBerry did not know how to compete with this, and so they were in preserving mode. Look, we have a big market share. Let's just hold on to what we have. This Apple thing is just for schools. Kids will like it, but we have the business community. We're going to just circle the wagons. We're going to do what we do, stay focused, be good at it, and not worry about them because they're into fancy looking, flashy <laughs> school projects. It's it's a toy. It's not a business. And it's probably also why it's important to look at the future or to take some risks sometimes because I saw an interview recently connected with the launch where they were saying Steve Ballmer, former CEO of Microsoft, was like, the business community will never latch on to an iPhone phone because they want a physical keyboard like a BlackBerry. It's never going to work. And now how many business people do you know who have a phone that has keys on it? Oh, uh, none. <laughs> you know, so, none that I run around with anyway. But it was a risk at first. And it they was. had to kind of say, for the future, we're predicting this is how things will go and we'll take that risk for a potential payoff. Right. Absolutely. And there's risk and reward and everything. So what we have them do is frame up their paradigms, understand, okay, what filter am I looking at this future in? Mm-hmm. Then the other is we used to be able to say, let's plan a one, five, 10, 20 year projection. Well, we don't do that anymore. Five years is about the max that we will go out because mm. so much changes in five years in today's speed compared to, you know, 50 years ago, you could, you could set a plan for 20 years from now. And, you know, at the pace back then, it was reasonable. Today, five years seems like an eternity based on technology and innovation and different things that are happening. So we don't go any further than five years. I like to have a, a quarterly plan, an annual plan, and a five-year plan. And past that, it's not relevant. So what we do is we move into assumptions about the future and we set it up to where we have categories. So what categories do we want to make some assumptions about? Then we brainstorm those assumptions and we don't allow people in the group to shut down others during the brainstorming. Brainstorming is truly about what do we think could possibly happen or some assumptions. So for example, I work with a bank and some of the bank is convinced that blockchain and Bitcoin and FinTech, all this stuff that's out there on the news right now is a disruptor that's coming and we have to prepare for it. There's another side that says there is absolutely no way once it becomes popular the government will get involved like they always do. They'll start to regulate it, and it won't be any different than what we're dealing with right now. They're trying to go around regulation by having this, and it'll be shut down. And matter of fact, this week in the news, I think I saw something. China is starting to shut down Bitcoin because they don't want it to disrupt their current Mm. volatile currency. You look at someplace like Venezuela right now that's in massive turmoil. Yeah. Bitcoin is a way for people to make a living there, but they have to do it underground 
because the government is in such turmoil and there's so much poverty there, they don't want people to use Bitcoin as a way because it will only erode the government's control even more there. So there's bigger plays out here that we have to take a look at. And that's one of the assumptions that we have to play with when we do it. You have to look at both sides. You can't just say, no, we're going to stick to our traditional model. And you can't say, oh, there's a new thing. We have to jump on it real quick. Shiny. Yeah. (laughs) And and a lot of organizations do, and they lack focus and burn up a lot of money. And I'll be honest, I've done it over the years. I mean, I've been an entrepreneur the majority of my life. And so I've had shiny ideas come to me and I get excited about them. And I'll, I'll jump in, spend some time and money on it. I've had some winners. I've had some losers because I've never met a successful entrepreneur who can't tell you some more stories of of some losses. Right. But that's why you put out the assumptions and you get together and you brainstorm. Yeah. And then so you do the assumptions. You can't shut anybody down on the assumptions. And then you move to probability in three areas, high, medium, or low. An assumption might be, let's just talk about blockchain taking over all currency around the world and banks become irrelevant. Is that a high probability in the next five years, medium or low? I would say low at this point. Yes, at this point, because we don't know how governments are going to react. We don't know how it's going to work. So right now in a five-year window, it's a, it's a low probability. You know, next year, the year after, with more information, it might move from a low to a medium or it could jump from a low to a high. That's why you have to continue to do these assumptions on a regular basis. And then the last category is how is this going to impact us? Mm -hmm. So if I'm in banking, the category is fintech or blockchain, uh, Bitcoin. What assumptions do we have about it? Right now, it's a low probability. So what's the impact? Not very high. Not very high, except for customers calling saying, hey, what is this? You know, what do you know about it? (laughs) But two years from now, three years from now, Let's say something changes and it's major. More likely is things like Apple Pay and stuff like that. And if you're a bank staying on the cutting edge of ways that people pay for stuff, maybe not the currency they use, but that would be a high probability. So if you weren't in that market and you see the saturation everywhere, you might say, this is something we want to get into. It has a high impact and a high probability, right? Right. Absolutely. So to me, with a bank being one of my clients, one of the questions that I have from on a regular basis is, in forecasting the future, how relevant will checks be? Because to me, checks seem so antiquated and outdated, but yet they're still a part of the norm. Right. In probability of checks actually going away with things like Apple Pay and with Venmo and others where you can pay that way and all kinds of different ways to exchange currency. Why are we still using such an antiquated system? It's for that old lady at Sam's that I'm always behind whenever I'm in a hurry. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, it's an antiquated system. So that's a real assumption about how long is this going to be relevant? Yeah. What could change it? So on and so forth. So then when we think about the forecast, then we go into impact and response. So we say, okay, here's an assumption that we made. How will it impact our business and how are we going to respond to it? Mm -hmm. One of the responses is we're not going to play that game. Okay. And that's one of those responses that only time will tell. So if you go back years ago, there was Blockbuster who made the majority of their money on late fees. That was their number one source of revenue is late fees. They counted on people with late fees. So when Netflix started, they had to say, okay, here's some assumptions. Will Netflix make it? How will it impact us? And what's our response going to be? Well, in the very beginning, they said, the assumption is nobody's going to want to do this. All the paying a monthly fee and streaming, it's just too complicated. It won't happen. So the impact to us is going to be minimal. People still want brick and mortar. They want to go look around the store. And so our response is going to be, we're just going to monitor, but not really do much. When they started figuring out fairly quickly that it is starting to impact their business, then they had to make some 
assumptions. And one of their assumptions would be, do we need to change our business model? Should we start streaming? Right. What would the impact be if we did that? And they decided not to. Well, they, they tried some stuff, but it didn't work. They right. were too late yep. because they made their assumptions too late and they didn't calculate their impact. And some of you know the story. Netflix actually took off, did very well, and they flew into Blockbuster's headquarters and offered to buy them for $40 million. And Blockbuster looked at the assumptions of forecasting their future and they made the decision to say, no, we're going to stay our course. We're going to do our thing. Thanks, but no thanks. And they are all kicking themselves now. Well, yeah. And then... <laughs> quickly they became non-existent. But an interesting strategy as well. So Netflix previously was just movies and TV shows that already existed. And that was their business model was getting those to you. And now they're moving to creating their own content. You see more and more people creating their own content. So they had the assumption that original content would be valuable, would be something that would set them apart. And so they're even looking farther to the future. And that's what, if you're a company, you have to be able to do. Well, yeah, because there's cause and effect here. And the reason why Netflix and others are creating their own content is because not because of their strategy, but because of the way content can now be delivered on somebody else's strategy. The example then is with Netflix, they're an aggregator of movies. So they take somebody else's product, they aggregate it in a way where they can pay the provider and get paid from the subscriber and they keep a portion of it. That's what banks do too. That's what a lot of middle aggregators of information, if you go back again, we're talking about blockchain and Bitcoin and what they do is protect information and money. So if you want to borrow money, they validate the person has the money to loan to you. And they also validate for the person that's going to borrow the money, this person's credit worthy. And so they aggregate, they keep that information, they keep it safe. And what news stations have done, television in general, if we go back 50 years, there's five channels, right? And they're an aggregator. They producers make movies or make whatever they put it on TV. The TV station puts it out to their audience. They make money. The content developer makes money and the people that watch TV make money because of advertisers that pay for that. Well, when cable came in and all this other stuff, it changed the model. Well, the model is changing again. And the model now is people can buy directly from those channels. So apps created the ability to change the model. So it wasn't that the TV stations or the people that create information changed the model. The internet and Apple and others like that are the ones who changed the model for them by saying... We now can create an app where if you're HBO or you're Fox News or CBS or whatever, it doesn't matter. MLB for my wife. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, baseball or home and garden television. Yes. You can have your own app and you can have people pay you directly and you can stream it right to their house, right to their phone, right to their tablet. Right. Disrupts the model. Today, John Doe Public has no idea the amount of turmoil that's going on behind the scenes in news and media and print and everything. It is, it is literally chaos right now of them trying to figure out how to sustain their revenue with the models changing. Well, lots of industries are that way too because of the internet, how well, things have gone. Music is a perfect example. 50 years ago, you either bought the full album for $10, $15 or nothing. Yeah. iTunes and other streaming services came out. Now you can buy an individual song for a dollar or $2, or you can pay $10 a month and have 40 million songs. Right. Totally changes the industry, but you still have to create content for it to be valuable. And you have to have this aggregator that 
sells products and services. So Netflix and others have realized for us to be sustainable forecasting the future, we can't count on others to provide content and only let us sell it and make enough advertising revenue to protect our future. We have to create our own content on our own platform and have subscribers that pay us directly. That is the only real future that is safe. Right. We can't rely on an aggregator anymore. And even that, you're, you're taking a risk that that's actually what's going to work. So like any company, you have to kind of weigh the benefits and the risks. Absolutely. Because the amount of money that Netflix and others spend on an annual basis to create content is in the billions. Yeah. We're not talking small amounts. Hey, let's throw a couple grand and see if we can put a reality show together and <laughs> find a character to do this with. I'm talking it's some real money. So, right. so then what we do is we move into, okay, so what are the alternative business situations? And we try and pick two or three of the big ones and say, okay, let's really dig in and work out the alternatives here. If we take this strategy, what, what's our cost? What's our, if we take that one, what's, what's our risk? And so that's where the SWOT analysis comes in. Now, the SWOT analysis has been around for a number of years, but it is such a valuable tool. A lot of organizations still use it. And so it's broken into four categories. You have your strengths. So you can either do it organizationally or you can do it on this idea. Okay, so if we were to take uh, banking, for example, as we were talking about with the blockchain and Bitcoin, and say, should we move to more internet banking or not? Or should we build branches or not build branches? There's a lot of decisions. So we have to look at what is the strength of a community-based bank? And we have to identify all of our strengths. Why do our customers buy from us and use us as a bank versus doing it solely on the internet? All right. So we identify our strengths. This could be something like a reputation or, you know, Repu being good in the community type of thing. Yeah. A lot of it and bankers will tell you a lot of it has to do with relationships. Yeah. People want to have a relationship with their banker because if you are just graded solely on your credit score and your income to debt ratio and some of those, which big banks, you fill out an application online and you find out immediately, did you get approved or not? It's because they do it on an algorithm. Right. They don't do it on, you know, Randy, you're a good guy and I know you've hit a bump right now on the road in your finances because I know you and I trust you and, and, and I know things are turning around because you're telling me some of the backstory and how it's going to change and some of the stuff that you're doing. We're going to go ahead and give you that loan right now to get you through because we know you and we trust you and we have a relationship with you. And so even though our algorithm doesn't say to do it, we are going to override the algorithm because we, we know you. Right. And that's a big strength of a community-based bank. Now weaknesses, we have to be real as an organization on what are our weaknesses? What is it that we should be good at that we're not? You can't have a million ATMs like some of the big banks can have. You have to have fewer locations maybe just because of the size. Yeah. And because of the size, we can't have the best technology out there because we don't have the revenue to support all of these great new right. things that the big banks can do. So there's trade-offs there. We, we don't have the revenue to have this, but that's so that's one of our weaknesses, which when we look at our strengths, we look at that. So then what we do is we look at, okay, then what are the opportunities? What opportunities are in front of us that are realistic that we can actually implement? We've talked about future assumptions, so we can talk about these opportunities. And then we talk about the threats and the threats are, okay, what happens if it doesn't work? Or what happens if a new competitor moves in? What happens if our financing dries up? What happens if two or three of our key players quit or customers quit or whatever? So we have to look at the threats and weigh it. So we have our strengths, we have our weaknesses, we have our opportunities and our threats. And when we lay those all out, then we can create a hypothesis of moving forward. What, what is the best possible solution based on the information we have right now? 
I feel like a lot of companies, they just want to look at what they're doing well, and they don't want to have to think about the potential threats to their companies. I was listening to another podcast with Tim Ferriss. He's one of my favorites. And he was talking about people always do goal setting, but he does fear setting. So what are the things that scare him that make him worried? And when he actually thinks about it and fleshes out those ideas, he can say, okay, this is how I will keep from getting to that place that I fear. And I think in a business, it's probably very good idea to look at yourself and say, these are the potential things that could hurt us. And we need to look at that. Yeah. Fear setting is a is a good idea because as we talk about on this podcast, that fear drives behavior faster than potential gain. Right. We can set goals and that's exciting, but that may not get us to change behavior as quick as focusing on if I don't change behavior, here's the consequence. And consequences tend to move people quicker. And people don't want to think about their weaknesses. They like to focus on their strengths and they don't want to be told that they have a potential shortcoming. Absolutely. Especially people in leadership. A lot of people in leadership are optimistic. They're the glasses always full. We'll catch up if we're behind. We'll, we'll change. We'll do something different. And also sometimes in leadership, not always, but sometimes there's blind spots like in all areas. So the blind spot is, you know, I'm in leadership because I'm smart and I don't need information from others. My job as a leader or owner of this business, whatever it might be, is to come up with the answers. And so I'll come up with the answers. I'll come up with my own assumptions, my own strengths and weaknesses, my threats and opportunities. And then I'll come and I'll, you know, lay out the plan for everybody. And, and instead of trying to really think through it, and sometimes small business owners will go home and open up to their spouse or to a best friend or something. And the spouse and the friend, even though they're there for support, they don't have any clue how to help you through the process other than some spouses are very supportive. Some are just, you know, why are you bringing this crap home to me <laughs> kind of thing? You know, what, what can I do about it? And yeah. So it's really important for leaders to surround themselves with people that can challenge them, walk them through the process, share best practices, experiences. And that's why we, you know, we have these mastermind groups where we'll bring business owners together or leaders of organizations together in smaller groups and talk about what are the, your strengths and weaknesses, threats and opportunities? What are the future assumptions about what you're doing and what are you doing about it? And, and what are the risks if you don't do something about it and have a peer group of people they can flush these ideas out with? Because a lot of times, you know, people in leadership roles, it, it's somewhat of a lonely position at times. Because they, they can't share necessarily with their subordinates everything that's going on, either because they just can't because of the business situation or because they feel like it's an imposter syndrome in a sense. You know, I'm, I'm tasked with being a leader of an organization, but frankly, I lay in bed, stare at the ceiling some nights thinking I have no clue what the next step is. And I don't know how to find out what the next step is. The first step is admitting it. Well, yeah, <laughs> you admit it, but then, okay, now I admit, I don't know it. I, I've just confessed it to the ceiling fan. Now what, you know, who do I talk to about saying, with transparency, but not losing some of that, whatever you want to call it, clout, I guess, with my team, who do I talk to to say, I don't know what's next. Yeah. And I need someone to walk me through thinking out loud in a sense. I do a lot of the videos here at 360 Solutions, and there aren't a lot of people that are video professionals that I work with. And so I will often reach out to people that I've worked with in the past that are mentors of mine and say, what do you think about this? Just so that I can continue to get better and I don't ever feel like I've reached the pinnacle because nobody ever tells me your stuff is terrible. Or if you fix these three or four little things, you'll have an even better product. So yeah. I think it's important to always be open to the feedback and to seek out people that can build you up and make you better than you are. Absolutely. 
doing. And that's why it's important if you're not a part of some type of peer group or some type of support group or to seek it out, to find it. I mean, we've been doing them for years at 360 Solutions because it's important. And I personally am a part of one. You know, I wouldn't sell it if I didn't believe in it. So I do. And it's valuable. It's very valuable. Now, it's not one of these things that every single time I get together with other like-minded people that I have this massive epiphany of new information that's going to change my life. Sometimes that does happen, but more it's a reminder of the things that I know I should be doing anyway. I just am not doing it, whether it's because I'm complacent, I've forgotten, I needed a accountability, whatever it might be. And so there's multiple benefits of being part of some type of mastermind group or peer group with other people that are kind of on the same journey. So once you've done the SWOT analysis, what's the next step? You move into, and in, in our workshops, our high performance workshops, then we, we say, okay, we move into the next process, which is creating the core ideology. And that is, okay, we, we've kind of thought about the future, what we want to do now, what's going to keep us accountable to staying on track with this. And what is our core belief system or ideology? What are our anchors that are going to keep us tied to not getting off track from our mission because we're afraid of disruptors in the future? You know, what is it you know, a bank's not going to get into selling widgets just because they or think, socks or yeah, yeah, socks because the industry is changing. What's our core ideology? What do we do? Why are we a community bank? Why are we started? And how do we stay relevant in that space? And so we can, on another podcast, talk about the process of core ideology. But anybody that's listening to it, if I was to give anybody a challenge, mm-hmm. and that challenge would be if you are responsible for results inside of an organization, and especially if you have to get those results through other people, you're in a leadership management role. It is your obligation and your job to think about these things on a regular basis and not just focus on the day-to-day management of getting tasks done and making sure that the boxes are checked off. Your job is to think about the future. Think about your impact in the organization through your people on the future. Think about the SWOT analysis and the core ideology and these things and make it a part of your role as a leader in an organization. And if you're not familiar with some of these things, there are resources to help. I mean, we, we have a workshop, a number of workshops around the country, but we have a couple coming up in November, one in California, uh, in Yosemite national park. And we have another one in Austin, Texas, uh, both first two Thursday, Fridays of the month. And we literally will have a group of, you know, 25, 35 leaders that will be there for two days. And we take them through this entire process of assessing where their current organization is, giving them the tools and the framework to do that, taking them through this process of clarifying their strategy and threats and weaknesses, all those things. And then they leave there with an action plan. They leave there with a playbook in a sense to say, okay, this is what I need to work on here. And how do I close these gaps? And then they get their team involved and very powerful. Is that workshop just for leaders and companies? It's for anybody that has to get results through other people. And so you don't have to be an executive. You can be someone who runs a nonprofit. You can be someone who is starting a business and needs to know how to do this. But most of the people that attend our workshops are people that are in a leadership role inside of an organization. And this is part of their job responsibility is to analyze the problems, identify the gaps, clarify the strategy in the future, and work on their leadership development skills around execution. They just come to our workshop, helps them clarify all of those things and gives them a 
a simple but very deep process to work through to improve. I would also think we've been talking about using the SWOT analysis as an organization or with your organization, but I would think it'd also be a good idea to look at yourself maybe oh, absolutely. once in a while. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you looked at it from personal, if you looked at it just through the paradigm of fitness, you know, your strengths, your weaknesses, the, your opportunities, and then your threats, you know, what happens if I don't take care of my health kind of thing? Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a piece of the puzzle. And when you put those pieces together, then you get a clear picture of what you're doing. Strategy work is something that should be done all the time, but at a bare minimum, most of the organizations I work with that fourth quarter is when they really start paying attention to analyzing how this year go and what did we do right? What do we do wrong? What's the future going to look like? And let's put a plan together. Excellent. Okay. And I'll have all the information about the upcoming workshops in the show notes. So look for that and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Every little bit helps. Our website is hpleadershippodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hpleadershippodcast. Follow us on Twitter at hpl underscore podcast. And shoot us an email at podcast at 360solutions.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.